0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson lecture on the second book of the Ransom Trilogy, Paralandra. These lectures were hosted by New St. Andrews College and can now be found on the Canon app under the Lewis Lectures. Go download the app today in the app store of your choice and listen to the rest of the lectures. Welcome. Let's thank the Lord, Father. Thank you for our time together. We commit it to you and ask you to bless it, in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So we are continuing to work through the ransom trilogy. I'll begin by reminding you that we are trying to get other people to break the bad habit of calling it the space trilogy. Um, C.S. Lewis's uh, fictional. Uh, science-fictional treatment of certain themes that are present throughout his writing, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, which is the book we're going to focus on today, and then the third in the trilogy is uh, That Hideous Strength. We remarked last time that one of Lewis's goals in writing these stories was to get people to stop talking about outer space to think of it in terms of the heavens, um, and it's ironic that we call it the Space Trilogy, so let's not call it the Space Trilogy anymore. The Ransom Trilogy, I think, has the best uh, likelihood of catching on. So in uh, as we begin thinking about Paralandra, I'd remind you that the protagonist remains Dr. Elwin Ransom, a Cambridge Don. He was the protagonist of Out of the Silent Planet. He was... Um, he was um, kidnapped and taken to Malacandra um, by uh, Weston and Divine, two bad guys, uh, and they inadvertently uh, gave him the opportunity to learn old solar, making him uh, a much more formidable foe than he would have been otherwise. So he remains the protagonist in this book. His antagonist in Out of the Silent Planet was Dr. Edwin Edward, Edward Weston, a, a physicist bad guy. In this book in Paralandra, the evil is drastically upgraded. The evil is drastically upgraded as Weston comes to be possessed by the devil, by the devil himself actually, and he becomes the unman. Instead of becoming Superman, he becomes the unman. And the third main character in this book is the green lady the Eve of that unfallen world, the Adam figure, her husband Tor, comes into the book only at the end, and he is incidental to the action of the book. And Maladil is God, so Maladil is a, um, a very um, significant presence in the book. Um, but but his will, his requirements, his direction is very much present but he's not um, present throughout the book speaking as a character, but he's very much there. So we have Ransom, the protagonist. The antagonist is Weston, Weston slash the devil. Then we have the Green Lady, the Eve of that world, and her husband Tor, who's reunited with her at the end of the book, and then Maladil. The action in this book occurs on Perlandra or Venus. It is an ocean world, and the first couple there uh, live on floating islands. There is also fixed land, just, um, just as in our world, and the prohibition of Maladil concerns this fixed land. Just as Adam and Eve were told not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so also Tor and his green lady have been told that they must not spend the night on fixed land. They may visit there, but must not stay there. Let me say something um, as an aside about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Um, in our world. And and I think that Lewis sets it up uh, in a similar way here. Uh, Clearly, the prohibition of staying on fixed land is an arbitrary one, just as the uh, exclusion of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an arbitrary prohibition. Don't do this because I want to, um, A, establish my authority over you by telling you what you can and cannot do. And secondly, you're not ready for that yet. So the que- if, if someone asked the question, would Adam and Eve have ever been able to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Uh, I think the answer is yes. Throughout... Um, too many Christians, I think, interpret the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as the tree of the knowledge of evil. But when God comes down, he says, uh, to investigate what they've done, he says, they have become like us, knowing good from evil. Throughout scripture, the knowledge, being able to distinguish good and evil is a sign of maturity. Uh, small children who cannot distinguish right and wrong are immature. They're they're not ready for rule. Uh, Someone who is ready to enter into his kingship, someone who is ready to rule, someone who's ready to decide tough cases is someone who knows the difference between good and evil. So um, uh, this also heads off another common misunderstanding about it uh, because Adam and Eve both knew that to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was evil. In other words, it's not that they had no idea of the difference between right and wrong, uh, because if they had no idea of the difference between right and wrong, then there would be no reason to assume that they sinned when they disobeyed. So they knew the difference between right and wrong, but they weren't ready for rule. So the problem was, uh, if they had passed the test, and if they'd been patient, if (coughs) if they had allowed God to do everything in his good time, then there would have come a time when they would have been given access to the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. So God says, don't eat from this tree yet. You have the, you have the same sensation, you have the same idea when um, uh, Tor and the Green Lady are prohibited from f- spending the night on fixed land. You don't have the sensation that that's the way it's going to be forever and ever. That's, going, that's just the way it is right now. So right now, for the present, they may visit the fixed land, but they must not stay on the fixed land. So, Ransom is brought to this world by Maladil directly, and not as before, kidnapped by Weston. He was taken to Malakandra because he was kidnapped. He's brought to Paralandra by Maladil directly. He arrives there first, and he m- makes the acquaintance of the Green Lady. She has been temporarily separated from her husband, so she's all alone, and she is functioning without a head. Same setup as in our world, where um, although in our world we have an indication that Adam was there um, conducting the very first scientific, <laughs> scientific experiment, well, uh, what's going to happen if she eats the fruit? So she goes fir- first. So, um, uh, But in this case, uh, she is separated from her husband, and uh, Ransom meets her. Shortly after that, Weston arrives in his spaceship, and he begins to act the role of the serpent in the garden, trying to persuade the lady to disobey Maladil, for is that not what he really wants? And doesn't Maladil, Didn't Maladil tell you not to do this because he wants you to grow and mature and start making your own decisions? Isn't it his... Secret will that you disobey his expressed will. Subtleties like that, sophistries like that. The action of this book, which is considerable at the end, um, centers around the prolonged verbal combat in the middle of the book as Weston and Ransom present to the lady two completely different accounts of what happened to our world when our first mother first took the fruit. So the the middle of the book is an extended dialogue, an extended debate, as though the serpent had a counterpart, some other creature in the garden told Eve, no, don't do that because, and you have this extended theological debate, extended um, ethics, uh, debate over ethics. One reviewer commented once that C.S. Lewis made righteousness readable. Well, this is quite true. We can go a step beyond this and say that he makes righteousness tangible, palpable. This occurs so often that it is hard not to see it as fundamentally characteristic of his thought. He makes righteousness tangible, righteousness palpable. For example, in The Great Divorce, a number of people in the gray town, in a perpetually gray town, take a bus trip up to the outskirts of heaven and they have conversations with a number of people who came down to meet them there. The basic issues can be seen in all their conversations, but the backdrop that Lewis establishes for those conversations is really telling. Heaven is solid, and the people from hell are wraiths, barely barely having any substance at all. Blades of grass slice their feet, and an ordinary apple is too heavy to lift. The message is clear. Heaven is solid, and down in the gray perpetual drizzle that is going to turn into a black hell, everything is insubstantial. So the gray town is not hell yet. It's sort of proto-hell or pre-funk hell. It's, it's heading there. It's the gray town, it's not the black town. But it's still very insubstantial. It's very ghost-like, wraith-like. We see the same thing in the last battle. At the conclusion of that book, after Narnia ends and they all turn to explore their new surroundings, they discover that they have not lost the real Narnia, but instead have come into the real Narnia. What they had thought was reality was simply a slight foreshadowing of the substantial reality that was going to go on forever and ever. And the further in they went, the more real it got. So the farther into Resurrection life you penetrate, the more substantial it gets, the more real it gets, the denser it gets. In all of this, um and you have to you have to work with me here for a minute. In all of this, we can see Lewis's Christian Platonism. As Diggory puts it, it's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me. What do they teach them at these schools? But if this be Platonism, it's not your grandfather's Platonism. In Plato, the ultimate realm of the forms was spiritual, ethereal, rational, and emphatically not made out of stuff. Okay, in Plato, it's um, it's ideas, thoughts, uh, reason. It's spiritual. But in Lewis, the further up and further in you go, the more solid and real it gets. The more material it gets. It's almost like a photo negative Platonism. So. With, with Plato, this is the solid world, and then the real world is the spiritual, insubstantial world. In Lewis, this world is wraith-like, this world is ghost-like, this world is so transparent you can almost see through it, but then when you g- get up to heaven, that's when it starts to really get dense. All that we knew early on in our lives was only a shadow or a copy of the real thing that is coming. We live now in the shadowlands, and we will come to live then in a place where they really know what weight and density are supposed to be like. Now, because Paralandra is, uh, is sort of a neither fish nor fowl. It's, it's in the heavens, and, it, and there, it's, it's much more uh, sensuous, much more real, much more uh, geared to the senses than anything on earth as we'll, we'll see some quotes indicating that shortly, um, but it's not resurrection life. So it's still this side of the resurrection, but it's still much more um, sensuous than our, our world is. So uh, Paralandra occupies something of a halfway, um, a halfway position. Lewis consistently teaches us how to view the world through new eyes. When Jesus appears in a locked upper room to his terrified disciples, we all naturally conclude that since walls are solid, then Jesus must have been a ghost. But he proves that he's not a ghost to his disciples, inviting them to touch him to see that he is not a ghost. Luke 24, 39. It's one of the more striking things in all the Gospels. So the disciples are in the upper room, hiding from the, the Jews. They're, everything's gone wrong. All their plans have come crashing down. And the room is locked because they're afraid of the Jews. And then Jesus just appears in their midst. And after everybody goes, ah, you know, what, what do you think Jesus does? Well, he goes back into the kitchen and rummages in the, in the fridge. Do you have any? Do you have anything to eat? Well, because and he's making the point that ghosts don't eat. Ghosts don't rummage in the fridge, and he and he invites them to see that I'm not a ghost. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone, as you see, I have. Well, here's the question: If he's not a ghost, how did he get in the room? Right? What's going? How did he get there? Everything about the setup makes us think that, you know, I'm in a solid room, I'm in a locker room, I'm in a horror movie, and the ghost comes through the wall. But there's more than one way to come through a wall. You can come through the wall because the wall is solid and you're a ghost, or you can come through the wall because um, you're solid and the wall is a ghost. Right? What, what if the wall is ghostly? What if we are the ephemeral ones? What if we are the um, almost translucent ones. So, we think maybe Jesus teleported himself in there. It never occurs to us, unless we've been reading enough Lewis, that the wall was a ghost wall. Jesus did not go through the wall because he was insubstantial. No, he was raised in a body fitted for everlasting life. And what is one of our walls to that? What is one of our walls to that? And and you might say, well, except that even our our physicists will tell us that these walls are mostly empty space. Right? We we don't understand what matter is uh, really, but what we do understand it uh, about it is that it's not solid all the way down. <laughs> you get to you get to certain levels, molecular and atomic and subatomic levels, and you find that it's mostly space in between things. So, Jesus is raised into an everlasting life, and he appears among the disciples and startles them. The basic turn of Lewis's mind, making righteousness tangible, can be seen in every one of these three books, but it is especially vivid in Paralandra. This is a planet. As I mentioned before, this is a planet filled with sensuous delight and of a kind that cannot be adequately described back on Earth. The most exquisite pleasures we know are just hints of what is possible in a trans-sensuous life. I'll emphasize a trans-sensuous life, which must not be confounded with a non-sensuous life. A point that Ransom makes in a debate with McPhee on page 32. All right, so we are trying to figure out, uh, and also, if you want to pursue this, uh, Lewis wrote another uh, wrote an essay called Transposition, which um, is very helpful in understanding how how do we go from from one realm to another um, when you know how would you describe let's let's say you let's say in the resurrection you we had eight senses. Let's say we had eight senses. And then you had to come down here and explain some sensation that you had from one of the extra senses to people down here. You would have to make one of the current sensations um, do double duty. You, You would have to double up on one of our current sensations. Otherwise, no one would have any idea what you're talking about. So if you said there's this extra sense sensation and, and then you'd come down to a person here and you would have to say, it's like bright green triangles, if that makes sense. And the person would say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And you say, but, well, so how do you think that, how can you say that this is even a thing? Well, Lewis gives many examples of transposition where we, No, it's a thing. So how how can you, to use one of his illustrations, how can you have an artist render a three-dimensional landscape in color into a black and white drawing on a white piece of paper? How can the white paper represent snow? Or how can the white paper represent the sun? Or how can white paper represent the fire in the fireplace? Well, it can, and what you do is you just make pencil marks on the white paper, and you're going from three dimensions down to two, and yet you can look at it and see, yeah, this is that. It's possible to communicate in a lower register what is experienced in a higher register. And this is a, this is a philosophical problem that Lewis puzzles on mightily, and it shows up in his fiction. It's not just... It's not just in his philosophical essays. It shows up in his fiction, and it shows up here in Paralandra. So Lewis uh, Lewis understands why our imaginations run in this direction. Once confronted with the fact that our resurrection life will not be a sexual one, we assume that our only alternative is that of supposing that our human bodies will be scarcely recognizable or that we will be on a sexual fast Forever and ever, neither option is appealing. But Lewis shows us how to think about it. He is showing us this throughout all his books, and especially in Perelandra. So what we do is uh, our egalitarian age wants to say, well, externally you're a man or a woman, but internally you're just a, you're a human being. We're all just persons. We're all just human beings. No, we're men and women all the way down, and you will be a woman or a man forever and ever. So we, you're not going to have your basic identity erased. But don't think that, is that if, if Jesus says that in the resurrection, we neither marry nor are given in marriage, which Jesus explicitly says, we automatically assume, because of unbelief, we automatically assume that this means a downgrade. So... Uh, if you go up to heaven and you have marriage of the same of the same nature as what we experience here, then the in question stands. The Sadducees said, "Whose wife is she? All right? She's married to seven uh, different guys. And in the resurrection, whose whose wife is she? That's a reasonable question. If marriage translates up to just marriage, only a little more shiny. Right? The in question." stands if there is not transformation. But to say that there's transformation is not to say that God erases everything and starts over. All right, here's here's how Lewis illustrates it. Uh, This is from his book uh, called Miracles. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sexuality. Because that's as as high as his, his brain goes. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing that excludes it. We are in the same position, right? We're in the same position as that little boy. We don't know what God has planned. And we don't know how our being um, created male and female, how our sexuality fits into that. We do know that it's not marriage as we know it. We also should know, if we know our father, that it's going to be way better than what we know. And it's going to be way better in relationship to the people that you're uh, related to down here. Now, you, you don't have to worry about, in, in other words, you don't have to worry that you're going to be walking along in heaven one day, 100,000 years in, and bump into your old spouse and say, oh, hey, it's you. Not going to be like that. Well, and you might say, what is it going to be like? And then if you, try to, if you try to get your own domestic pleasures that you're enjoying right now, which are true pleasures... Chocolate's a true pleasure. If you try to cram everything into that, you're not going to understand it. We have no grasp of the positive things that exclude our current highest pleasures. But the further away you get from earth, the more clarity comes in. Life on earth is murky. Life in the heavenlies is sharp and in focus, suffused with clarity. Just as in the silver chair, Jill was told that it would be harder for her to think once she was brought down from the high places of Aslan's country. So it is with us. Something about the atmosphere of our world is is spiritually suffocating. It is hard to think with an epistemological pillow on your face. Paradoxically, the splendor of Paralandra, all, it was suffocating also unless you gave yourself over to it so it was suffocating overwhelming unless you surrendered to it it's sort of like swimming in perilandra if you're afraid of the waves you're going to be afraid of the waves if you give if you just let yourself go the waves carry you and it's glorious so here's what it says on 72 page 72 but when you give gave into the thing gave yourself up to it there was no burden to be born. It became not a load, but a medium, a sort of splendor as of eatable, drinkable, breathable gold, which fed and carried you, and not only poured into you, but out from you as well. Taken the wrong way, it suffocated. Taken the right way, it made terrestrial life seem, by comparison, a vacuum. So you see what he's doing. You you see that... Uh, Paralandra is not post resurrection. Ransom is an ordinary man, but he's an ordinary man in the third, in, in Paralandra up in the heavens. And Paralandra, being an unfallen world, is much more like the resurrected state than it is like our world. And so it's a place full of delight eatable, drinkable, breathable gold. If you resisted it, you were going to be crushed by it. If you gave way to it, then it's, it penetrated your entire being. You were f- suffused with it, and it transformed you. So it, it's quite striking. If you, look at, if you look at Ransom all the way through Paralandra, he comes across as, uh, as the green lady calls him, piebald man, because he was tanned on one side and, and pale on the other from, from the, the trip through the heavens and he's a comic figure he's very aware of his own um frailties his own infirmities he's a he's he's just very aware that he's not much of a specimen when he's confronted with the idea of of fighting Weston, he thinks of himself as you know I'm an academic i don't i don't get into fist fights I, i'm i'm an academic i i it, that, that doesn't work that way and you you get this picture of ransom and then when you meet ransom in that hideous strength where he is this glorious heavenly king this glorious figure suffused with light and majesty and power and you think wait is you know is this the same guy is this the same guy yeah it's the same guy but he's in two different places so what lewis is what lewis is doing here is he's Showing us an earthling on Paralandra and how he doesn't compare well. And then he shows h- how, he, uh, how he shows up on Earth once he is affected by all the interaction on, on Paralandra. So Ransom was one of these be he ate the gold, he drank the gold, he breathed in the gold, and he was transformed by it. So by the time uh, by the time he got back to Earth, his presence and what he exuded about Perilandra was overwhelming to everybody back on earth. At the beginning of Paralandra, the Lewis character, uh, Lewis wrote himself into the story as though um, this really happened to him. Uh, So the character that Lewis wrote as himself asks Ransom if he's going back to Malacandra. Ransom, stung with the memories of that place, reacts strongly. I'd give anything I possess just to look down one of those gorges again and see the blue, blue water and the smells. No, no such luck. He is going to Paralandra instead. Page 22. But as you will see, on Paralandra, he encounters yet another set of cascading pleasures. Um, Psalm 1611. At God's right hand are pleasures, a river of pleasures forevermore. It turns out that the heavens are just crammed full of them. And yet these pleasures are genuinely up, they're genuinely above. So when the Lewis character asks Ransom if he's going back to Malacandra, at that point, Ransom has only been to Malacandra and Earth. And Ransom is crushed. No, I'd give anything to go back to Malacandra, but it's not going to happen. He's going to Paralandra instead. But if you look at um, Malacandra and Paralandra, uh, and actually uh, Malacandra is, uh, how should we put this? If you, if you were to ask, is Malacandra a fallen or an unfallen world? That's a hard, that's a hard question to answer. Ours is a fallen world. Malacandra has known war, they've known great battles, have you know, and it's not as rich as Paralandra is. Uh Paralandra is a young world, it's rich, it's full of glory, and Malakandra is beautiful and lovely, and you know, but it it's somewhere between Paralandra and Tolkandra, our world. So when Weston first arrives, he accuses Ransom of having tr- of having tried to seduce the green lady, and he says that he does not believe Ransom to have been with her in a state of, quote-unquote, sexless innocence. Oh, sexless, said Ransom disgustedly. All right, if you like. It's about as good a description of living in Perilandra as it would be to say that a man had forgotten water because Niagara Falls didn't immediately give him the idea of making it into cups of tea. Page 88. In other words, you see... Not only that, he considers the uh, the resurrect the 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 life above the trans life, and I I have to walk carefully because in our day transsexual means something else entirely. Trans anything means um, a bunch of other nonsense. It, it, it refers to downgrade. But the way Lewis is speaking of um, trans is not just the word across. It's he's he's trying to communicate. How, how big the promotion is, how, how much grander it all is. So he says, our, our view of sex and the ordinary pleasures of this life is like cups of tea, and the way it is there is like Niagara Falls. You're, you're, it's, yeah, it's water, right? It, yeah, there's continuity, there's a connection, but it's not, not com- it's comparable, there's a connection, but it's not comparable at the same time. After Ransom came back from Paralandra, he told his friends that he had, been able, he had been enabled to see life and that it came in the aspect of a colored shape, a colored shape. He struggles to communicate this, but the problem was down here, not up there. Once, after Ransom's return, the Lewis figure, again, had been questioning him and had incautiously said, of course, I realize it's all rather too vague for you to put into words. At this, Ransom took him up rather sharply, quote unquote, for such a patient man, and said, on the contrary, it is words that are vague. The reason why the thing cannot be, the, the reason why the thing can't be expressed is that it is too definite for language is too definite for language. So for Lewis, the spiritual is solid and the physical is ephemeral. The heavenly is clear, the earthly is murky. Righteousness is tangible, and sin is just so much smoke. Lewis writes in a way as to make righteousness real. real. He makes righteousness readable, he makes righteousness real, he makes righteousness palpable, and he he does this because uh, as he gives writing advice. He doesn't tell us what reaction we ought to have. He tells us things in a certain way as to elicit that reaction. He doesn't say, and at this point, you, the reader, should be terrified or awe-stricken. He tells us things that make us feel that way. Another related element that comes into this story is that of myth. It's that of myth. When Ransom comes to a particular place, a particular scene on Paralandra, he, quote, recognized the garden of the Hesperides at once, page 45. A page later, he had the strong sensation that he was enacting a myth. Right. In other words, he's in it. He's doing it, and he feels like he's enacting a myth c s Lewis had loved mythology for many years before his conversion and had regretted that they were not true before he fell away from his christian faith he um, He was struck by the fact that he was more affected by the Norse gods in whom he did not believe than he was affected by the Christian God that he technically was supposed to believe in so this god I believe in doesn't affect me at all. The Norse gods that I don't believe in at all affect me profoundly. And that, the thing that was different, the, the thing that distinguished them, was that uh, the Norse gods were mythology and Lewis was affected by mythology and the Christian story was not mythological. But you'll see there was, there was a uh, confusion about definitions going on there. Lewis had loved mythology before his conversion, and he had regretted that the myths were not true. Myths, he said, were, quote, lies breathed through silver. Lies breathed through silver. When he was brought back to the Christian faith, it was in large part because of an argument uh, from his friend Tolkien that had really unsettled him. Why on earth would we suppose, the argument went, that the fact that something was a myth meant that it could not have happened. Why can't, so um, there was a long conversation. I think it went till like three or four in the morning. Uh, uh, Tolkien was one of the people uh, talking to him about this and another gentleman named Hugo Dyson. They had this long conversation and Tolkien said, yes, I grant everything you're saying, myths are glorious. But what is it about a myth that means, that makes you think it cannot have happened? When we say, oh, that's just a myth, we're saying it's a, it's a legend, it's, a, it's an old wives' tale. So what we mean by the myth of this or the myth of that is we believe, we're saying this is a story that is not to be believed. In our common terminology, that's a myth is tantamount to saying that's a lie, false by definition. But for Lewis, he came to believe that a myth could actually be a genuine myth, and yet we would not yet know if it had really happened or not. In other words, you could recognize the true mythological character of something and not know, and, and say, that's a myth, that's a true myth, and yet not know if it had actually happened. We, modern scholarship that, was, that Lewis was brought up in um, taught us to say, as soon as you've said, that's a myth, The next thing you must say, and of course, it didn't really happen. Somebody cooked it up. Now, just because it's mythological doesn't mean that it did happen. But Tolkien persuaded Lewis to come to the view that, all right, it's a myth. It still may have happened. It may not have happened. Just as someone might write a biography, and we would not know if it was of a real person or not, so with myth. So someone could write a, bi- a biography of a real person, or someone could make up a biography of a fake person, and we wouldn't know. So with myth, the form that something takes does not require that it be true or false. In other words, myth is a certain, fo- follows certain characteristics. It has a certain shape. It has a certain texture. It has a certain form. So the form that something takes does not require that it be true, does not require that it be false. To be a myth was to be archetypical, and the archetype could be the truth or not. So a myth is an archetype. A myth is an archetype. So Eve, reaching for the fruit, is a myth. Uh, The story of Pandora's box, opening the box and all the troubles coming out, that's a myth. Right, that that's that's the shape of a myth now we would say either as Christians we would say either Pandora's box is mythological and false or it's a myth that is a downgrade myth from the Eve story in other words this is um, this is t- a better example would be all the um virtually every nation among men has ancient Uh, stories of a flood, of a worldwide flood. North American Indians have stories of floods. The Chinese have a story of a flood. The first, uh, the founder of China was uh, named Fu He. He, His name means tamer of the animals. And he was the one who founded China after the great flood. right? And one of the things he did is he drained, uh, he and his sons drained a bunch of standing water off of China after the flood to make it... uh, Habitable, So Noah is a, Noah and the ark, that's a myth. And Deucale, the Greek Deucalion is a myth. The Babylonian Noah, uh, uh, Utanapishtim, is a myth. And the myth can be accurate or inaccurate or completely made up. It could be completely false. It could be partially true, partially false. And if it's in Scripture, then it actually happened. If it's in Scripture, it's, it, it takes the form of a myth, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And this is the sensation that Ransom has on Perlandra. He says, he, he, oh, I'm in a myth, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm, being, I'm that guy. I'm that person, I'm in that place. So, to be a myth is to be archetypical, and the archetype can be true or false. The evil physicist in the garden was part of the archetypical scene, and he had a mouthful of lies. The deliverer who came to crush him and who was wounded in the heel as he did so was also part of this archetypical myth and embodied the truth. So Ransom, who's... um, and this is something that's borne in on Ransom when he's arguing with uh, God about fighting with Weston. Um, the thought comes into his mind, it is not for nothing that you are named Ransom. And Ransom is a philologist, and he knows that the, the source of his name, the origin of his name, doesn't have anything to do with ransom payment. But God says, yes, it does. You know, Yes, it does. That's part of the mythological element. You're going to be wounded in the heel. You're going to kill this version of the snake that came to, um, to Paralandra, and so on. So um, Lewis says this in God in the Dock. Now as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. The heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact the old myth of the dying God without ceasing to be myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place followed by definable historical consequences by becoming fact. It does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle. That is the miracle. Myth, mythology becomes fact. When ransom finally ends the temptation, he does so by attacking the unman physically. Right? He ends the temptation by attacking the unman physically. And, and that's what makes the end of Perlandra such an exciting story. It turns into a gunfight. It, well, not a gunfight, but it turns into a physical battle. This, uh, when this thought, this approach is put into his mind by Maladil, he recoils from the thought initially. But the test of the lady was probationary and was never intended to go on forever. The resultant combat is, like everything else in this world, archetypical. When Ransom comes back to our, our earth after his defeat of the Unman, he is utterly transformed. When he had come back from Malacandra, he had, he had had some spectacular adventures, some spectacular experiences, but he came back as the same guy. He's the same man. When he comes back from Paralandra, there is no way he can go back to philology at Cambridge. All right, did you see that? He can, when he's kidnapped and goes to Malacandra, he was on a walking tour, he disappeared for a time. He comes back from Malacandra, he can go back to his old job. He goes back to his old job. He's ransom of Cambridge. When he comes back from Paralandra, there is no, you can't do anything except hide him up at St. Anne's and have people come to him. Because if if he walked downtown, uh, it'd be um, everybody, it'd be consternation everywhere. So, when he comes back from Paralandra, there's no going back to philology at Cambridge. He must be the Pendragon and he must be the Lord of the company at St. Anne's. He left as a mild mannered academic and he returns as a Christ figure. He fought the devil and defeated him finally in a subterranean cave, just as Christ had descended into Hades. He fought the unman and was wounded in the heel. Genesis 3.15. Having returned to earth, there was no way for that wound to heal here. Despite the wound, however, he was now a radiant figure, brimming over with the kind of life that he had seen in the heavens. Like we're told um, in Scripture, when we, when we finally see him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, we will become like him because we will see him as he is. What we view, what we see, what we watch what we're looking at transforms us. And Ransom had seen enough of God's glory in the heavens to be transformed by it. So he's brimming over the kind of life that he had seen in the heavens. In striking ways, he resembles the Christ of the descriptions of Christ in the book of Revelation. This is not because he's supposed to be Christ, far from it, and the thought would appall Ransom. Ransom is not. Christ, But he is clearly a Christ figure, and it is in the battle with the unman that this happens. So that's where the transformation fundamentally occurs. And, you know, remember he crawls out of the subterranean cave and he he's recuperates for weeks and months. Um, but the, the, the turn, the transformation, the place where he becomes the one who descended and killed the devil and then ascended again, is at that moment next time that hideous strength thank you thanks for listening to this week's edition of the all of christ for all of life podcast that was douglas wilson's lecture on c.s lewis's paralandra find the rest of those lectures again on the canon app